I don't know if you have a picture of like the huge layers of rock in the Grand Canyon, right? And there's these giant lines, limestones and sandstones. And it was this point of realization where I was like, oh, we're not in the middle of one of those layers. We're at the boundary between two of those layers. We're at that point where things are changing really, really rapidly. And it is a whole different way of looking at the Earth system. And that has, I think, come to be very central to how I understand climate change. Welcome to episode one of the Alaska's No Climate Change podcast. And that, by the way, is no spelled with a K. Alaska's No Climate Change is an education campaign sponsored by Ketchmack Bay Conservation Society, a member-supported 501c3 nonprofit based in southern Alaska. In this episode, I sit down with PhD geologist Brettwood Higman, known to most simply as Hig. I'm a geologist, in a lot of ways kind of a generalist scientist and data analyst and guy like being a communicator. Right now I'm a cartographer, where a lot of my brain has been lately, so I do a lot of different things. I'm in Soldovia, Alaska, which is a very small town, uh, off the road system, but not that far off the road system in Alaska. Um, traditionally fishing village, now a bit of tourism. I actually grew up in Soldovia, so I went to high school in Soldovia, and I uh, went to college in Carleton in Northfield, Minnesota. And I went to grad school. I graduated with my PhD in geology from the University of Washington, Seattle in 2007. After graduating with his PhD from the University of Washington, Hig and his wife, Erin McKittrick, trekked from Seattle to the Aleutian Islands, an unprecedented 13-month-long human-powered expedition. Oh, oh yes. I, and and I, I, I walked. Um, <laughs> walked, packrafted, skied for about a year up into and then through Alaska. Actually, getting to Alaska, was, that was the easy part. It was mostly the going through Alaska was a, a bit more arduous with, with my, with my uh, wife, Erin. What I studied in geology was uh, natural disasters, and I worked on tsunamis. I spent time in the Indian Ocean, along the Indian Ocean coastline after the 2004 tsunami. That was where the bulk of my, my uh, doctoral work was there. Professional study and, and hands-on research of natural disasters, like tsunamis, that often kill thousands of people, eventually led Hig to think about other natural catastrophes, like climate change. One big realization, another one that really came out of my training as a geologist we spent a lot of time trying to understand things that happen very slowly and that happen very infrequently. You know, if you've got, you might be looking at rock, a rock layer, say, that takes 10 million years for it to have been deposited and then form, and then maybe 100 million years to form into rock. Really, really long time frames, way beyond what we can just directly experience. So this is really a challenge as a student of geology, is how do you meaningfully grasp these long time frames? It was actually kind of around the time, I've, just a little while after I finished grad school when we were traveling up through Alaska and going through places that were changing very rapidly, where I could see the change right in front of my eyes. Maybe not literally like I sit there and it's changed during the time I'm sitting and staring at something, but I can tell that changes are happening within my lifetime. That over and over again, I encounter in natural systems, things are changing on every level. That the rates of change, although they seem kind of fast as a human, you know, you can be like, oh, I don't know, the you know, sea levels are rising, whatever, some couple millimeters a year or something. 
Because of rising sea levels, the residents of a small coastal Alaskan village have voted to move to the mainland. However, they may not have the funds to do it. The 600-person village of Shishmaref is located on an island just north of the Bering Strait. For decades, it's been ravaged by erosion tied to climate change, leading residents to seek a more sustainable place to live. Making it difficult to relocate, however, is the fact that the community is racked by poverty. I look at Earth's history and I see that that actually is something that generally the Earth does not operate in that, in with those kind of rates, and that when you throw everything out of equilibrium, things change really quickly. And, you know, things uh, become very unstable, I guess, is the point I was getting at there. This is a very connected thing. You could start in a lot of places, but one place you could start is just with the measurement of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we've been measuring it for quite a while, and there's a whole lot more CO2 in the atmosphere now than there was a couple hundred years ago. And we can go way back before the instrumental record because there's bubbles and ice and stuff. There are ways of measuring that. So this is a change. It could be, you know, if we didn't know any more than that, it could be like a shrug. Who knows? But as we start to try to understand what the implications of that change are, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that this is trapping heat. This is making the, the planet on average warm up. You know, when you get that warm wind from the south into we're living up here in Alaska where there's this time of year where it's December, there's very little sunlight, there's very little heating, but the warm wind from the south, normally where it would be cooling much more quickly, it's not. It's bringing that heat all the way up here because it's trapped in by the CO2 in the atmosphere. So that is kind of the core, the, the simple, natural thing that's going on. It's then, you might ask what we can do about it. And I think it's only at that point that you really start to care that humans are even involved in this change. If we look at the CO2 in the atmosphere, there are a lot of ways we can tell that this has come from the fact that we're extracting compounds that have a lot of carbon in them, things like coal and oil, and natural gas, from the ground, and we're burning them, and so we're combining them with oxygen and producing CO2. This is carbon that has been in the ground for, in a lot of cases, hundreds of millions of years, and over the course of hundreds of years, we are burning it. That's what's led to this change. And so that tells us also that we can do something about this. Most notably, we can just slow down, stop doing that. We can reduce the amount of fossil fuels we burn. We can also do things as far as potentially we can find ways to capture some of the CO2 and turn it back into complex carbon solids of various sorts. And there are different directions to go there. This system, when you warm it up, you warm up the climate system, a lot of things change and the way our uh, civilization and also ecosystems as well, but you know, to us, ultimately it's civilization that, that is most important, they are linked to the stability of this system. And so this system is changing and that means that places where we built our cities may be starting to go underwater. Um, it means that where we grow our food, may become not possible to farm in. It means that the permafrost is melting away from under villages. It has a lot of impacts that if there was no change, things were working okay, but they aren't gonna work in, in this changing world.
One term that's used a lot by um, ec economists trying to understand this kind of thing, it's not just climate change, but it's a, climate change is maybe one of the best places to look at this, is the idea of an externality. So when you, you go and you buy something, there are two parties involved. There's you, in this case, I was saying you're buying. There's also the person who's selling. You guys agree on a price, the seller and buyer, and ultimately that price um, ends up reflecting the cost. Ideally, it actually increases everyone's wealth because you as the person who's buying it have made the choice to get the thing because you'd rather have that than your money. And the person who's selling it has the opposite. They're like, maybe they have a thousand of these things. They'll give away one in, in order to get some money and that's more valuable to them. So everyone gets off is better off. But the thing that this can miss is if in that transaction, someone else if someone else suffers, then that kind of messes that equation up. So say what you're buying is electricity and it's generated from a coal-fired power plant. And so the person selling the electricity, they're going to make sure that the costs cover the coal that they purchased and and the person buying it is going to pay and, and then they'll, they'll use that electricity to do something. Well, that coal burning is putting CO2 into the atmosphere and that's leading to climate change. And say this is a coal plant in New York, that CO2 is affecting everyone on the planet. It's affecting poor people in Bangladesh whose villages are being flooded. It's affecting native villages in the Arctic that are melting into the sea. It's affecting New Yorkers who are facing the risk of bigger storms and rising sea levels potentially being a lot worse for them. So it's affecting everyone. Throughout the world, one of the groups of people most unwilling to address climate change has been American conservatives. However, the most famous conservative economist, Dr. Milton Friedman, proposed long ago that it is essential to tax emissions because of the costly harm they cause third parties. Dr. Friedman is our guest, and we hope you'll join us. But there is a case for the government protecting third parties, protecting people who have not voluntarily agreed to enter. So there's more of a case, for example, for... Uh, emission control than there is for airbags. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what's the best way to do it? The best way to do it is to impose a tax on the amount of pollutants emitted by a car and make it in the self-interest of, of the car manufacturers and of the consumers to keep down the amount of pollution in that way. So that's what an externality is. And a, if, you, if you love economic systems, you love the way that a free market can create wealth for everyone, externalities are your enemy because they, they are a corruption of that system. It means that when people act in the way they do in economic systems, they can actually, they are having a negative effect on someone else. Sometimes those externalities can exceed the amount that, of money that's exchanged. And in that case, you actually have a self-destructive economic system. That if that, that part of the system is actually decreasing wealth and potentially dramatically. And coal power is maybe the best example of this, partly because of climate change, but also other things, co-pollutants like particulates and stuff. So what would you do with that perspective? One thing you can try to do is you can say, well, one unit of CO2 emissions, one ton is usually what we use of either a ton of carbon or a ton of CO2. How much economic negative impact does that have on the world? And it's a very difficult calculation to do. Um, this isn't something that 
the economic system naturally tracks. Um, you have to go through and try to piece it together. You have to look at what these impacts are. And you also have to think about future impacts, which is especially hard. It requires modeling the climate system. It requires modeling how people behave. However, if I just stop there, I just tell you, geez, it's really hard. And you say, okay, well, what are you going to assume? If you just say, I'm just not going to include it in my calculations, you have made a model there. Your model has said the externality is zero. And I can tell you that's very wrong. Your model sucks. You need to do something. You know, you're going to do a lot better than if you do nothing. And so these numbers have come in basically at many different values that have tended to increase as the models get more detailed and as we have more input into them, as we see some of the consequences starting to unfold of climate change. It's very plausible that these impacts range somewhere between a couple hundred dollars and a couple thousand dollars per ton of CO2. And so for reference, we're talking about one American for one year might produce 20 tons. So we might be talking somewhere between $4,000 and $40,000 of, of negative externalities from their normal activities through the course of a year. So that's a very important way that you could potentially put a price on a ton of carbon. Now, that is the price, it's not actually the cost of a ton of carbon, it is the cost of doing nothing about a ton of carbon emissions. And there's a very different way that you might think about a cost that relates to carbon, and that is how much does it cost to not emit that ton. So emitting it and doing nothing costs you hundreds or thousands of dollars. What does it cost to not emit it? And what it turns out is right now, it's pretty damn cheap. I've seen some projects that are reducing CO2 at a cost of $4 per ton. There are a lot of cases where we can reduce CO2 emissions and profit. So it actually has a negative cost. Um, for instance, if you have an incandescent light anywhere in your house, switching that out for an LED light, that is, of the ones I've seen analyzed, that is the single highest benefit. So you, you will make bank out of that and you'll reduce CO2 emissions. That's really good in that it means that there's something we can do that's not terribly expensive and we can avoid those huge costs, those hundreds or thousands of dollars for each ton. The sad thing about this is the fact that there's this huge discrepancy between how much it costs to reduce it and how much it costs if we don't reduce it. That means we're way behind the game here. We should have been doing things to reduce those emissions a long time ago, and we haven't. So if I, I gave that example of the, um, of the CO2 emissions from a coal-fired power plant, another example would be, you know, people smoking. If they get sick and then public health care is paying for that sickness, or if someone is exposed to secondhand smoke. Few examples or... exist where government and society have come together to confront negative externalities in the marketplace. One strong example, with over a decade of data to support the efficacy, however, is cigarettes. The choice to smoke cigarettes is a classic example of harming third parties, people and institutions that did not benefit in the sale or purchase of the product. When people choose to smoke, healthcare costs, for example, increase for everyone, secondhand smoke harms others, and litter increases. Based on a comprehensive review of evidence, the Surgeon General has called rising prices on cigarettes one of the most effective tobacco control interventions because increasing price is proven to reduce smoking, especially among kids.
Research conducted by the Center for Disease Control has proven that raising cigarette prices increases the quit rate among adult smokers and is especially effective in discouraging children and young people from ever starting to smoke. There are many ways in which the fight with big tobacco a couple of decades ago is similar to the fight to protect the world from runaway climate change now. We know that by making detrimental products more expensive to account for the harm they cause others is an effective strategy to change behavior. You, you make it so that, oh, I'm paying 10 bucks for this pack of cigarettes instead of a dollar. If that is communicating to people that this is actually very costly, then they're going to behave in a more economically rational way. With carbon, with CO2 emissions, and also other things that are similar, so methane emissions and such have similar impacts, there's been a lot of discussion and there have been some systems implemented around the world in various places. In the U.S., the biggest one is in California, where we do something like that. We basically, we look at some point in the economic system where CO2 is being released and we say, okay, we're, gonna, we're going to add some cost here so that what people pay better reflects the actual cost of that activity. And then as a consequence, the economic system will behave more rationally. It will behave in a way that is more positive for everyone involved in that economic system. When we come back from the break, we'll dive into carbon pricing and uncover why this is the cornerstone issue in our fight against runaway global warming. Stay with us. You're listening to Alaskans Know Climate Change, an education campaign sponsored by the Kachemak Bay Conservation Society. Welcome back to episode one of the Alaskans Know Climate Change podcast. My guest, Saldovia resident Brettwood Higman, known to most as Hig, is an Alaskan geologist and an adventurer who has spent countless hours in the backcountry of Alaska, studying and observing climate impacts on our state. Before the break, we heard how this geologist and explorer thinks about the unique time we are living in. It was this point of realization where I was like, oh, we're not in the middle of one of those layers. We're at the boundary between two of those layers. We're at that point where things are changing really, really rapidly. The rates of change currently going on throughout our global climate system are rarely observed in the geologic record. What we can do to prevent global warming from becoming much worse often feels like too large of an issue to tackle. However, there is one simple step that could lead to a cascade of positive action in our fight against a runaway greenhouse effect, carbon pricing. If you've heard the phrase, a revenue neutral carbon tax, this means you would collect the tax from everyone 
And so the people who burn more CO2 would end up effectively paying more of that tax. And then everyone would get the same amount of money back, but equalized across everyone. So everyone, every individual person would get $200 or whatever it ended up being, regardless of whether they emitted a lot or not very much at all. So anyone who is emitting less than average actually makes money out of this, out of this deal. Personally, I really like that approach because I think it is directly influencing the economic system to behave in the way we would like it to behave. It is just simply saying emissions have this additional cost and so um, we're going to tack that cost on. It solves a, a one sort of thorny issue in here, which is that there are some people who, if people are uh, poor and they uh, their job really requires them to drive. They could get, if there was just a tax without that reimbursement, they could end up in a pretty rough spot. It could really disadvantage poor people that don't have the latitude to just be paying a whole bunch of extra money. French President Emmanuel Macron made more concessions today in a desperate attempt to get the LFS protesters, or Gilets jaunes, off the streets. Je demande au gouvernement et au Parlement de faire le nécessaire afin qu'on puisse vivre mieux. The French government recently chose to make their carbon pricing revenue positive in an attempt to boost support for renewable energy projects. In an understandable turn of events, the country's most economically vulnerable rose up to protest the carbon pricing. It seems entirely possible that this uprising could have been avoided if the revenue generated from the increased cost of fuel would have been, instead, redistributed to the population. Ultimately, it's the people who are flying all over the place um, that, are, that are going to be paying the biggest tax. It's not the poorest people. So they'll actually, prob most of them are going to be end up net positive. They'll end up getting more money out of this. And I think that's good. In rural Alaska, people pay a tremendous amount of, for, for fuel. This tax would be on the carbon, not on the amount you pay. So if we're adding, you know, 50 cents a gallon, it's going to be 50 cents whether you're in Kaktovik or if you're in New York. They also tend to burn a whole lot less fuel there because they're going to use, because it's really expensive, basically. They also don't have, you know, a million miles of roads to go drive an hour and a half every day on or whatever. So, um, so they're going to end up net benefiting in most or all cases. Uh, so that, I think it would work out fairly well for, for the, those rural communities. You know, ideally, what we want to see is a uniform carbon tax globally. Like, you know, this is because you don't want to displace effects. So if you institute a carbon tax locally, and then so then, you know, it's your, your neighbor that ends up doing all the stuff that's, that requires a whole lot of energy. The most recent United Nations report on climate change stated that our civilization has little more than a decade to rein in our fossil fuel combustion or blow past the 1.5 degree C global temperature increase. If we miss this target, we'll never get another chance. In order for carbon pricing to be the most effective, it needs to become universal. States and nations can, however, get the ball rolling. British Columbia, for example, has had a revenue-neutral carbon tax since 2008. The province has proven to the federal government that carbon pricing can achieve the desired goal, reducing harmful greenhouse gas emissions, while not tanking the economy. Beginning in 2019, Canada will begin a nationwide fee and dividend carbon pricing you know, model. For, uh, for sort of an economic purist, it's definitely less desirable. But given that, you know, we're all separate jur jurisdictions and we have to work within within our boundaries, then I think that at least 
uh, in the interim, we need to have something like that. You know, I'll say that say the United States instituted a carbon tax, like beyond just saying like, okay, we're hopefully doing something more substantial now to to move uh, to a world where we're mitigating climate change, we're mitigating emissions that are leading to climate change. Are there other benefits? Some of the most obvious ones, I kind of alluded to this earlier, talking about coal power, fired power plants. Um, there are a lot of the CO2 emissions, there are what are called co-pollutants. So when you emit CO2, you emit something else as well. And um, particulates, for example, tend to be very, very problematic. They lead to cancer and such. And so by reducing CO2 emissions, we'd see reduced um, emissions of some of these other, you know, mercury into the atmosphere is another good one. Um, actually, I interacted with a really kind of like super small scale version of that. One of the, we purchased some carbon offsets, my family, uh, to offset our own personal impact. Carbon offsets are inexpensive donations that individuals, businesses, churches, or others can make to certified projects that either sequester carbon or prevent it from entering the atmosphere in the first place. This voluntary marketplace of carbon offsets is incredibly meaningful in our fight for a stable climate. In future episodes, we will take a deep dive into this topic and explore the myriad carbon offset projects that currently exist. We bought into this program that was installing more efficient wood stoves in rural P Peru. And so um, these stoves uh, help with climate change because they cut the amount of wood that's burned by about a third, and that means the forests grow bigger, there's more carbon tied up in the forest rather than being in the atmosphere. And also it reduces some, some other compounds that are problematic like nitrous oxide. Additionally though, what this means is putting a stove in, in the kitchens of, of these people living in a very uh, simple lives rurally in Peru that has a, a, a clay chimney and it burns very hot and efficiently. And uh, this is an upgrade from what were open fires in closed structures. And uh, if you go into one of these, it's just choked with smoke and the walls are black and that all of that smoke is being breathed by the people who are in there cooking and the families in there eating and that sort of thing. It's really a big negative to have their old system in terms of the, the impact to them personally. And it turns out it's also a negative in terms of the climate. So by putting some money into fixing this problem for the sake of reducing CO2 emissions, we also fix this problem that the local villagers have been facing. And what we heard from the village that we visited is that initially it was pretty, it'd be difficult. You go into a village and like people are not really sure about this. They don't want to change the way they're doing it. Once you get a couple people to adopt it, the, their buddies come and check it out and they're like, oh, this is sweet. We want this system too. And then the whole village adopts this new building a stove in their, in their homes. For decades, the fossil fuel industry has understood that the combustion of their products places our global climate system in peril. Instead of working towards cleaner technology or transparency, Many of the industry's largest companies funded climate denial think tanks, fought regulation that would limit emissions, and have prioritized profit for their shareholders over a stable and livable climate system.
Many fossil fuel companies now realize that carbon pricing is likely inevitable and have begun to account for it in their internal profit and loss accounting. However, in 2018, the fossil fuel industry spent nearly $30 million to defeat what would have been the nation's first carbon tax in Washington state. I think one of the things to, that it's important to recognize from the beginning is that these are companies, they have valued their assets, and that's really important to how they, their stock value and stuff. And if we look at that, this is one of the things that our economic system does intrinsically track. I mentioned earlier the way that externalities are not intrinsically tracked. Well, the value of assets that a company has, those are intrinsically tracked. There's something that um, is very important to investors and investors are very important to the company. So this, this information gets tracked. If we look at that, Presumably, their fossil fuel resources, the reason they have value is that they are going to extract them and then they would be mostly burned. If they burn all those resources that are on their books, this is a huge problem. It's way more than, uh, it pushes us not just over the really problematic thresholds at 1.5 degrees Celsius change or 2 degrees Celsius change. It pushes us way up there. We cannot burn all the fossil fuels and this puts society as a whole in direct conflict with the interests of these companies. I think that any conversation about this does need to recognize that difficult fact. There may be pleasant ways to resolve this, but it's not, not easy. If we institute a tax on carbon, it's a fairly gentle way to go in a lot of ways. It What it should do is that it will make all of the technologies that are dependent on burning fossil fuels more expensive to operate. That will make it economically attractive to develop other things. There should be minimal shock to this. If you start your prices reasonably low, at least, and this is a problem because you're probably going to start them way below the externalities, so there will still be this irrational market behavior. I guess if I think of it in terms of just let's break, let's get some of the building blocks to try and understand what we do here. So one of them is what I was saying about the fossil fuel companies have, they are in conflict. Their interests are in conflict with the interests of the rest of society. So that's one. Another one is the sort of behavior that we expect to see carbon taxes instituted. And that is that when you make one way of doing things more expensive, then it will become less attractive and other competing approaches will be more attractive. So in this case, less attractive to use fossil fuels to power your industry, more attractive to use um, renewable energy, for instance, to, uh, to power your industry. So that's another big building block to understand this. A third really big one is that economies and businesses are very dependent on stability because they need to develop a path, a business model, however you want to think about it. It's basically a plan so that they can continue to function, they continue to be profitable going into the future. So from that perspective, you need to kind of ratchet this up. You need to start with a somewhat lower thing and then as quick as you can without causing an economic crisis, bring that up and aim to get to the cost of externalities. As you're doing that, um, what we'd expect to see is a lot of, I mentioned the way carbon offsets are so cheap compared to carbon externalities. 
well, these things will start to come into line, but that's not because we'll be artificially inflating the cost of carbon offsets. It's because we will be buying up all the cheap carbon, off carbon offsets. And those are the things we should have done a long time ago. We should have been buying up, we should have been going, like the fact that there are still people burning open fires in, in buildings in order to cook their food is bad. Like we should have fixed that a long time ago. It would have benefited the environment. It would have benefited those people. Now with this pricing scheme, we would see that happen pretty quickly. And all of a sudden you wouldn't be able to get that $5 a ton carbon offset because every stove that was so inefficient would have been replaced. And you'd be looking for something else that's $8, that's $15, that's $40. And it will keep climbing until the, the price of offsets is going to approach the price of the taxes, and that's going to be about the same as the price of the externalities. That's the convergence we want to see, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of seeing the, the economic system really all work together to make all of us more wealthy, which, I mean, I'm using wealth not just in terms of how many dollars you got in your pocket, but in terms of you having what it is that you want out of the economy. Some things will get harder, some things will get more expensive. You don't get to stay the same. You don't get to get stay the same either way. Like the, the crap that happens if we just let climate change go and, and get more and more extreme is beyond imagining. Like it is really, really bad. And you don't get to just keep doing the same stuff in that case either. Now, if we had in that fantasy world instituted carbon prices in the mid 80s, I think then we could have probably completely averted the negative impacts of climate. Not everything. Uh, we'd still have glacial retreat going on and, and such, but we would be able to probably avert long-term sea level rise. We'd be able to uh, change things to where they were really not that painful and we would be in a very different world today um, that would I think be a lot better in a lot of ways but sadly we we missed that opportunity Now we're reaching a point of crisis, and so I hope that we can respond before it goes to an even worse crisis that is even even more uh, unimaginable that we wouldn't respond to it. I mean, there have been a number of studies that have come out recently, and the biggest one is IPCC report that came out uh, this year, just comparing what we knew a few years ago, a handful of years ago, to what we know now is tremendous. We've learned a lot and it's gotten a lot scarier as a result, unfortunately. Um, we've also seen a lot of these things come and happen. You know, we've seen changes in the way storms are working and we're seeing sea level rise becoming an increasingly obvious issue in a lot of places. The urgency is at a level that is, it is difficult to imagine us responding at, this, at the rate uh, we would need to in order to get to some of those those uh, most optimistic targets, like 1.5 degrees Celsius. And even getting to 1.5 degrees Celsius, even if we can get there, we're falling real far short of like, you know, la-di-da, nothing happened, it was all good. Um, it's still a pretty bad scenario. We're probably still looking at sea, uh, sea, sea level continuing to rise probably centuries into the future, even if we stopped emitting in 
in, uh, in the next decade. Things are very urgent is what these reports are telling us. You know, I wish we had more of a space to, to you know, politically and, and sort of as far as the societal conversation to recognize that. And um, we can't ignore all the other issues that are out there, but we need to have this one a front burner issue. I mean, it's, it's on the scale of like, you know, if we were preparing for World War III happening in a few years, the sort of actions we would take to do that are maybe similar in scale to what we be, need to be doing to prepare for climate change. We heard music in this episode from Alaskan musician Mark Teckenbrock and Elite Nine. For information about Mark's music, visit markteckenbrockmusic.com. Alaskan Snow Climate Change is an education and advocacy campaign supported by the Ketchmack Bay Conservation Society. If you like this podcast or any of the other content Alaska Snow Climate Change produces, please consider making a donation or becoming a member by visiting kbayconservation.org or hitting the donate button on alaskansnowclimatechange.com. Thank you for listening.